Hi everybody, I have such a treat of an episode for you today. I have Deborah Kopakin here with me for about an hour and I want to read you her bio because we just jumped right in and I want to make sure everybody knows who she is and the extraordinary stuff she does. So Deborah Kopakin is the New York Times bestselling author of several books, including Shutter Babe, The Red Book, and Between Here and April, among others. She's a contributing writer at The Atlantic. She's also a TV writer on Emily in Paris, a performer on The Moth, etc., and an Emmy award-winning news producer and photojournalist. Her photographs have appeared in Time, Newsweek, The New York Times. Her writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Guardian, Financial Times, Observer, The Wall Street Journal, The Nation, Slate, Oh, Oprah Magazine, and Paris Match, among others. Her column, When Cupid is a Prying Journalist, was adapted for the Modern Love streaming series. And her seventh book, Lady Parts, a memoir of bodily destruction as a resurrection during marital rupture, was published by Random House. So you're going to hear us talking about a lot of these things, her books, her writing. I asked her to be on the podcast because I wanted her to talk about a beautiful piece she wrote about the anniversary of her father's death on her Substack, which I strongly recommend that you subscribe to. She, I've been reading it for a while. She gives really practical and important information, um, and she has an incredible way of thinking. I am never going to stop thinking about the way that she describes using awe as a spiritual practice. And if you go over onto my Instagram, I'm going to put up the photo that we talk about in this episode. So welcome. This one's just a beautiful one. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am fangirling and being ridiculous because I have no idea how I got this to happen, but I have Deborah Kopakin here with me today, and I am so delighted. Thank you so much for being here. Megan, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Also has three kids with COVID in her house right now. So it's actually like a miracle that she's here. But I reached out to her a little while ago. I used to write notes to Sting and tell him that I wanted to be his backup singer and knew that those were not going to get to him. But the internet is a much more glorious place than my old letter writing in the mid eighties. If I had known months ago that I'd be able to convince people to come on my podcast just by saying, I love your work, I would have done it the instant the internet allowed it. So thank you so much for doing this. What I reached out to Deborah about was she wrote a gorgeous article. It's, it was published first on your website. Is that right? Is that where I would have found it? So I have a Substack, stack yes. um, called lady parts. And I wrote about the 13th anniversary of my father's death, which always hits me. You know, I, I Listen, my dad died 13 years ago. He lived to 67. It's not like he died in his 40s, right? He had a long-ish life that was cut off too short with pancreatic cancer. But every year on December 8th, I go a little bonkers. And I try to work during that day. And I've tried to work every year on that day. And then by lunch, I give up. I just decide I cannot work. I'm going to give into these feelings. The feelings hurt. The sadness is real. The grief is real you know, grief lives inside us, right? And we can push it down 
and we can forget it's there and we can grow a big life around that grief. But that grief stays the same size. It's not like it shrinks. People say grief shrinks. No, it doesn't shrink. It just sort of hides a little bit. And so when we're reminded of the loved one on anniversaries, on their birthdays, on their anniversaries with my mom, you know, anytime there's sort of a, 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 a red note day, I am forced to remember that this man whom I loved dearly, I had an amazing dad, mm. an amazing dad. And I'm forced to remember that he did not get to experience the last 13 years of my life, of my children's life, which kills me even more because he was an amazing grandfather. He did not get to, he did not get to experience Trump, even though Trump was horrible. Right. It would have been fun to talk to my dad about how evil this man was. He didn't get to experience Obama as a president. He didn't get to see my kids go to college. He didn't get to see them leave college. He didn't get to see my daughter go to med school. All these milestones he's missed. And so every year on December 8th, I'm reminded, shit, he's not here. Yeah. You have this beautiful line. Um, I'm going to quote you to yourself sure. now, which is grief on the anniversary of a loved one's death is simply grief allowed one day of untethered expression, which is just the gorgeous truth of truth, which is most of the time, I think we're trying not to feel or be overwhelmed by grief. And then, you know, these anniversaries come up and our bodies remember them. I mean, I have a friend who died who I can't consciously tell you the date of his death, except I get really crabby right around that week in October. Our mutual friend will be, will say, oh, well, it's, you know, Bart's anniversary. Oh yeah, that's that is what this is. Tell me, tell me, because I do want to talk about the piece. And what I said to you a minute ago is like, it's this Russian doll set. So for people who are listening, go to the Substack, subscribe because it's worth it. There's some things that you get as a subscriber that you don't otherwise. And I'm going to talk a, a little bit more and ask Deborah to talk more about her writing in general. But this particular piece you, you say in it, it's, you know, free form and, and you're just really writing it about your dad's death. But what I would say is it's like a big exploration of a lot of grief that you are describing in this, in this piece, which is, it's got music that you talk about your dad loving. And actually I went and listened to Enya after that. Cause I was like, oh my God, I haven't thought of that in a long time. A movie, which is also this gorgeous Emily Mortimer movie. And, and you talk about that, but also I think you're talking just now about all of the things that he didn't get to witness. And so I'm just curious about that. Is that how you experienced your grief of him? Sometimes people will say, God, I really could have used his advice or I miss that he used to, you know, make his homemade bolognese. But the way you referenced it is a bit like, God, he would have been here to see these things in the world. Like he missed his own life, I guess, is what that sounds like to me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, certainly when I got divorced in 2000 or when I got separated from my marriage in 2013, when I got divorced in 2018, I mean, my dad was a lawyer and I had to do my own divorce by myself because I didn't have enough money to pay a lawyer. Like, certainly I missed him during those times, both logistically and as a, and as a shoulder to cry on, right? But my grief is more about what he has missed, not what I have missed. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think about all the transitions I've gone through, the good and the bad, and yeah. how 
much he would have enjoyed talking through the good parts and helping me through the bad parts. And I just can't believe he didn't get to see this part of my life. I cannot believe he left me when I was in my early forties and I'm now 55 and there's a lot that happened. There's yes. just so much that yes. happened. He left when I had, you know, a two-year-old baby and older kids who were, you know, just entering their tween teen years. And, you know, that moment you're in it right now, that's like yes. you're in the parenting moment and you cannot get out. And you literally are not spending enough time with the parent, your own parent, because you don't have it. You're working, you're parenting yourself. You're, you're making excuses to your own parents. I'll be there. I'll be there. I'll come. I'll come. And then it's, it was over and, yeah. and it, and I just wish I had more time. Yeah. I wish I'd had more time. And I guess that's what we feel about any death, right? Yeah. Although I would argue that 67 is young. I mean, my dad died at 80 and, you know, he, he said many times that he felt like he had a full life. And when I look at where I was in my life with him, then we were very at peace in terms of our relationship. And I didn't, I didn't rely on, I have a lot of siblings who I rely on for a lot of the like, Hey, I need your advice on this, or I need your help with this. My dad didn't really play that kind of a role, but he really liked tennis. And when something extraordinary happens in tennis, I just am really wistful. It's like bittersweet. Like, God, why didn't he get to see this? The writer, Jessica Dulong, who wrote this extraordinary book called Saved by the Seawall. And it's about the boat lift the, during 9-11. And Jessica and I, we grew up in this same tiny farm town in Massachusetts and did Cinderella together when we were 11. And so when that book came out and my mom wasn't around to read it, she read every biography, every memoir, everything true. Why would you read fiction when you could learn something real? I mean, I was like angry for a month. That book came out and I was like, the only person this book would have mattered to more than the author is my mother. And I really miss their lives for them. When my kids do something extraordinary and I just want to brag about it to someone, I miss my mom a lot because she would indulge me in a way that no one else would. But for the most part, being in the world and being like, oh my God, they would have loved this. This would have been something that they really enjoyed is, I don't know. I, I think lots of people mourn in that way, but I, but you've had many years and yeah, but it doesn't get easier. I mean, I just remember sitting, my daughter started med school this year and I was sitting there at her white coat ceremony when she gets her white coat. God damn. <laughs> and I was just thinking my dad would love that. Yeah, that's right. And I'm thinking about it right now and I'm getting teary, right? So yeah. he would have loved seeing that. Yeah, I'm so sure. How old was she when he died? 11. Was her medical tilt out there yet? Or no? um, she had said before, you know, in middle school, she was talking about wanting to be a veterinarian. So, oh, you made me cry already. I can't. I didn't even it. mean to. It wasn't on purpose. <laughs> We're talking about grief. We might as well cry, right? You know, it's so important, you know, and I said to you beforehand, like, I, you know, I, I'm trying the best I know how as somebody who's been in this world for 20 years, trauma therapist for that long and a primary griever for, you know, four or five years, I'm, I'm just really trying to help people see 
that a griever is something that we become in the same way we become a parent. We're never not a parent. It doesn't matter if your child isn't even alive anymore. You know, when you experience the kind of loss that feels like you lost a part of your own body, it never goes back. So much pain around the misinformation about what grief is supposed to be. And when you look at the fact that we have 800,000 people that have died of COVID in just this country, and each one of those people is mourned by what's estimated seven people. There's just no way that the mental health community, I mean, I already have a line out the door and I'm giving lectures to companies so that I can help. So what I've been saying to folks is we have to make this like the class we give in middle school to kids who are about to go through puberty. Agree a hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. I was just thinking my, my son yesterday was reading parts of the New York times article out loud about our, the way we messed up in Iraq and killed bunches of families. And I think about each of those family members. And I think about the pain of the one man who is, you know, who, it was a woman actually who survived the bombing of her house and she lost her kids and her husband and her brother and each of those losses. And we wonder why wars continue, Absolutely. you know, we wonder, oh, why? Because we mess up and kill whole innocent families. And those families carry that grief generationally. They're gonna be feeling that grief for generations to come. You know, I had a grandfather, my grandpa Albert, who was an infant when the Cossacks came into his town in Kiev, tossed him against the wall, broke his arm, little infant baby broke his arm, and then my great grandmother brought him to America, you know, to Ellis Island. And she was afraid when she got into New York Harbor that because he was wearing a cast that they wouldn't let him in because they, if you were sick, they wouldn't let you in. So she took the cast off. She had it cut off. And my grandfather's arm for the rest of his life hung limp. So his left arm was shorter than his right. It never grew to its proper size. And so I had this sort of visual image looking at my grandfather of that generational pain, right? Yeah. That I've told my children about, you know? So it's like, we carry these insults and it's not just grief, it's about generational pain. It's about, I'm again, I'm thinking about wars in particular because yeah. I was a war photographer, but you know, war is an expression of grief too. Absolutely. Right? I think every conversation we're having, honestly, when there's an, when we're having an emotional conversation, we're talking about loss and the reaction to loss. And what I know from being a trauma therapist and how energy can get stuck in your body, you know, so trauma, it's always good to remind people of this is an event that happens, but being traumatized is the meaning that your body and your mind make from the experience. And so it generally means that your body sort of short circuits and the way we talk about fight, flight, and freeze and fawning, but fight and flight does not usually lead to trauma. What usually leads to trauma is when you are stuck in the thing. And you're talking about transgenerational trauma, which is you just have it handed down. I mean, your grandfather, he, you know, his arm was doomed from the beginning. And so when we're having the conversation about grieving, grieving is moving the energy through the body holding the loss and then moving it through, which doesn't mean it's not going to regenerate itself. But if you know how to move it through, it almost doesn't matter that it regenerates itself. It doesn't matter that we're on a call and you feel emotional thinking about your daughter graduating, about your dad, because if we know how to grieve, then we move it through. But he, but guess what? Nobody knows how to grieve. People think just crying 
well, you know, so many men that I work with say, I, I didn't cry. And I'm like, that doesn't mean you didn't grieve. But so many people said, well, I spent a week crying and they're like done and dusted. I grieved. And what you and I know is that we grieve forever. And what's interesting from a brain science perspective is that we collect the experiences of our body and mind in places in our brain. When I was young in DC, I came down here to work at the social policy think tank. And I had a boss who was, he was blind and I read him his, his mail, which is what I was, you know, which which was deemed acceptable with my brand new master's degree was to read my boss's mail. And he was a totally difficult person, but we, we developed a relationship and he died suddenly from cancer. And when I went to his funeral, I spent the entire time grieving my grandfather who died several days before I went to boarding school. There wasn't any time. I went to his funeral and then I was late to boarding school and everything felt all fucked up. So here I am, you know, 15 years later, sitting in a church, grieving my boss, but also grieving my grandfather. And the more I've come to understand and know and learn is that's the way that it is. We don't have a choice about that. That's the way our, our brains code information. And so it's an always job an always job to say, you can't really skip it. You got to kind of do it. No, I had a really, I, I had, and I still have a really amazing GP, you know, my normal primary care provider, a man named Dr. Bertie Bregman. I went to him about a month after my dad died. And I said, I cannot get out of this grief. I have never felt this way. You know, I've never had serious depression before, but I just felt like I am not making it. I'm not able to get through this. So he put me first on Lexapro, right? And I was on Lexapro just to get through that hard part. And once I was stabilized, he said, okay, I have a new prescription for you. And he handed me a piece of paper and it said yoga on it. Mm. And I was like, not a yoga believer at the time. I was like, yeah, right. No, I'm not going to do yoga. I'm not that person. I'm not a yogi. And he's like, just try it. I want you to just try it because grief is somatic. And if you move your body, trust me, the, the, the depression will follow. I mean, we will go away. And I, you know, I'm a rule follower. So if somebody hands me a prescription with the word yoga on it, I'm like, all right, I'll try it. And he was right. And I did yoga every day after that prescription. I didn't do it in a class because I didn't have money, but I got a tape. Yeah, yeah. Rodney Yee, he was great. And I didn't, Rodney use yoga every day for nine years. Oh my God. Nine years. I recently stopped. I'm now walking. I'm doing seven minute work. I'm doing other stuff because it was just like, it actually became this sort of intense thing where after the nine years were over, I was like, I will do yoga at another point in my life. But right now I need to leave that aside because it just was such memory. It was actually like, it was, it was almost a trigger of like, this is what I went through when I went, when I went through the group with my dad and it's time to move on. So I would say that Nine years is a pretty decent amount of time to get through grief. And now like I only feel it on the anniversary. I love that. There's there, there is a modern grief theory, which is called dual process model, which essentially says, I mean, it's much fancier in its language, but essentially it says, spend some time grieving, spend some time not grieving. Yeah. And, you know, live your life and also make sure to grieve. A lot of what I talk to people about is sort of like, okay, tell me about how you live your life 
How is that going? And then tell me about what you're doing to grieve. And generally when people are coming to talk to me in my private practice about trauma, those things are not very well balanced. I love hearing the description of yoga because it's a tool to help you with the grief, but then it becomes an anchor to the grief. So it, yeah. it itself, we have to transform from, and it doesn't mean you can't come back to yoga, but you want to come back to it as the thing that is a somatic release, not the thing that is the reminder of the grief itself. Interestingly enough, I live in Red Hook, Brooklyn, and I was walking down Van Brunt Street the other day, and I noticed that there's a new yoga studio in town. And I'm not really a yoga studio person. I was like, oh, this is how I might be able to do yoga maybe once a week, not every day, and to have the joy of that movement through space, but have it be a new thing and a new experience. So I'll see when it opens up, I think it's with Omicron right now, who knows what's happening, but yeah. That's another, that's another piece that's sort of like the ebb and flow for folks. It's always interesting for me because I have about 20 clients that I see each week and you know, there's the general thing that's being reported in the news. And then there's this little data set that I can collect from my own clients. And everybody this week has been talking about how they wish they were exercising more. They wish they could go to the gym. And that's probably has a lot to do with the holidays and the descending of people and the going to the places and all of that. But I think it also has to do with people like to linearly believe we are moving forward. And my kid's school, I had gotten one or two notes about COVID and I got five notes just this week. I think part of what happens is when we feel like we are not in control, being able to have something energetically to do is really, really good. Not just because it does what Lexapro does, which is it, you know, increases some of the brain chemicals to make you feel better, but also because it anchors you in some sort of an action. This podcast used to be called grieve is a verb because the idea is we need to, we need to action it in some way. So yoga sounds like it was a great prescription for you. And I know, because I know, I know you're writing, I started to say your piece was like a Russian doll. There was also this other gorgeous video that you generously put up of you giving a talk, um, which I wanted to talk to you about, because to me, that also felt like whether you would have said it or not, it, it also felt to me like a speech you had written about grief. It had a, a, a tone and I'll let you talk about what you were talking about, but it had a tone of sort of, can you believe this is the way the world expects women to live? Right? Like, let me alert you that this is what's going on. But underneath it is this, can you believe that this is the way the world expects women to live? Right? Which just is so grief laden. So I think that both that speech and the book that I just published, Lady Parts, are in many ways, my grieving the fact that I didn't get the same kind of opportunities in life as a man. Yeah. And at this age, 55, I can now look back and say, well, at one point at a job, I was sitting next to a man who was two years younger than me, had gone to my same alma mater. He was getting, I found out later, $200,000 to my $39,000 a year for the same job. And I fought and fought for the money for an increase in salary because at $39,000 a year with two kids in college and one at home and babysitting costs, I was really unable to make ends meet to the point where I had to have, you know, talk about grief as your side hustle. I had several side hustles. I had a photography side hustle. I had, you know, writing other articles side hustle. I was trying to publish a book during this time. I, I did publish a book during this time. And, you know, I am grieving the fact that I had to work 
twice as hard, four times as hard, 10 times as hard for less pay and that my life has been difficult because of that. Yeah. I am grieving the ease with which men move through the world. I am grieving the ease with which men move through the world and do not have to get assaulted yeah. sexually. I've dealt with many sexual assaults. So I, you know, we, we grieve people and we grieve the life we didn't get to lead. Yeah. That's exactly right. I'll say it and then people will write to me and I'll send them copies of Lady Parts. But I just, I don't know what I thought I was opening when I opened the book. And I've already said to you, the writing in it is so um, stark and gorgeous and funny and just really, really perfect. I'm in the middle, like my book is due January 7th and I've spent a whole day just like reading, you know, my husband was like, what are you doing? You have a deadline. But I do think part of, part of what you, that, that is very clear to me is that you are offering us a fury that is fueled by grief, right? That, that when there are women who are speaking the truth, they are speaking the truth with a an anger and a, and a frustration, you know, anger is about injustice. Frustration is about being misunderstood, but this concept of that fury and that anger, like people want that to be the only truth. And what I know about fury and anger is that the minute you validate that, the minute someone says, well, it makes sense to me that you would feel that way. That's insane. That must've been so hard and hurtful then right underneath it is that, yeah, it is insane and it is hard and hurtful and filled with pain. So that, you know, the first section of your book is about this huge health crisis that you have where you nearly die. It's just breathtaking. The writing is really breathtaking. I can't imagine what it was like to experience it, but you also stop short in the, like, none of this should have happened. None of this should have happened. So it's, you know, the misogyny that, drives a lot of the experiences that are so hidden, you know, in your lecture and in your book, you talk about, you know, it's not just the men, it's the women that are also handing this down. I've experienced such discrimination in terms of pay, in terms of expectations, um, in terms of 360 reviews where you're called shrill, if you are in any way assertive of asking for money for writers at another job where I was told that my job was on the line because I was asking to pay people for work that they were doing. And these are people who were dying. These are people with illnesses like cancer. And and they were writing pieces for this company that I was working for. And we were not paying them, even though we had promised them we would. And all I was doing was coming to my boss and saying, we need to pay people for proper work. And they're like, well, they like doing it for free. I'm like, they don't like doing it for free. I talk to them every day. Nobody likes working for free. People like to have their name in a publication, but they don't like to do it for free. No. It's crazy. It is well, what I, crazy. The injustice that we, that we perpetuate and the concept of grief and loss getting stuck I really believe that if we were people who understood how to move grief through us, I don't mean it the way this is going to come out, but like we wouldn't tolerate some of the intensity around some of this terrible stuff in, in the same way. So by that, I mean, if, if we said, okay, 
10, I'm having a seizure. I'm so activated and zero, I'm asleep. When I'm around a, a six, I'm activated to a point that isn't good for me. So I've got to get myself down. And what generally activates me is some kind of bumping into some grief and loss. That's what generally activates me. I'm only two years into my mom's death. And so then I do yoga or I meditate or I write. Mostly I write. And I text my best friend and say, you know, I'm having a terrible time. And I teach people those things, right? Like moving your body, expressing through creativity, reaching out to a friend. These are all tools. But what about the woman who's sitting and lowballing some poor woman that she knows is going to be sitting next to a guy and making $40,000 less? What does she do with her energy about that? Right? Like, cause I just don't believe that humans have no energy about it. And so what I know is her migraines that she gets and her, right? Like it's, we're somatic. So that energy that she isn't able to move through her, that she isn't able to grieve helps her tolerate the job that she's doing and continue to do the job. And also it's going to give her all kinds of somatic stress responses, illnesses. You know, we have a lot of data. And yet that woman probably has kids at home or maybe a husband and, or maybe a, a female partner. We don't know, but she has bills to pay and she got into HR and people who go into HR are empathic people that think that they're going to be doing a job that is like working with other humans, human resources. And then they get to the job and they get to corporate America and they find out actually what your job is to do is to be mean to employees. My sister's going through this right now. I mean, also we need to talk about ageism in this equation because you know, my sister who's hitting 50 years old works for a company that I won't name, you know, because we're talking publicly, but they're known as a company that's supposed to be a kind and good company. And they are literally aging her out. She's given 17 years of her life to this company. She works in marketing. She has done extraordinary work there. She has foregone children. She has foregone a marriage. She has a partner in life, but she has given her life to this company. And suddenly on the brink of her 50th birthday, they're telling her, oh, we're putting you on, you know, a, a performance review or whatever like that. She, wow. And, and they have just fired a bunch of other people in their fifties. And it is so clearly, clearly ageism. My sisters and I were yelling at her, get a lawyer, get a lawyer. This is actionable. She finally did. I can't say anything more, but it is, can oh. I say bullshit on this, on this publication? Or this? Yes. It's yes. We bullshit. love swears. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the like fired upness of it comes right in the partnership with the grief of it. Again, I'm in DC. There are, there are all of these folks, all the women that I'm working with who are trying to better the world in all the right kinds of ways. And they're doing that with loud voices and they're doing that with their bodies and they're doing that with their writing and their creativity. And they all, it is also fueled by all of this pain and hurt around injustice. And so one of the things that we talk about in grief a lot is that being able to kind of make meaning from your loss is important, which drives some grievers crazy. Don't tell me that I need to start a cancer fund. I don't have the money and I don't have the time. And that isn't what we mean. What we mean is to be able to not only just feel terrible, that when there's a loss to not only say the only thing that happened was my dad died and my life was worse for it, but to be able to say my dad died and I'm continuing the legacy of his sense of humor with my children. It can be a small meaning, 
But part of what the meaning does is allow us to sort of transform that sense of vulnerability and sadness into something else. What I know for people who are out there, like you are in so many of your writings and all of the things that you're doing, I would argue, because it's everywhere that you are using that fuel of your intelligence and your, and your resistance to, to what you know is injustice, but that I can hear and see and know that it's also coming with this real pain of having experienced the injustice. Well, I would also argue bringing it back to my dad, the one for whom I'm grieving that the big life lesson he taught me was David versus Goliath that any David can go up against a Goliath and win if you put in your heart and if you if you enter into it with a full heart. So for example, mm. his big case, his big pro bono case that he worked on for 10 years as I was growing up, spending time away from me and my sister because he was really believed in this case was the US Navy was bombing the yeah. inhabited island of Culebra, which is off the coast of Puerto Rico. And he represented pro bono the island of Calabria against the U.S. Navy, right? Imagine going up against the U.S. Navy. But 10 years later, he won. And whenever I'm writing, whenever I'm talking to my children, whenever I'm giving a lecture, you got to know in the back of my head, that is my dad speaking through me. And that's how I move the grief through me is I embody him. Yeah, I embody his life views. I make sure that I am true to his ethos, right? This past summer, I found out that my partner for years had been cheating on me and lying to me about other things and (sighs) my partner. And so, you know, what do I do with that grief, right? We were planning to spend our lives together. That's not going to happen. I don't live with somebody who lies to me. And I also promised him at the beginning of our relationship that I would never write to him. This is what happens when you date a writer. People, you know, People say to me at the beginning of the relationship, please don't write about me. Obviously, I'm going to keep to that promise, but I've suddenly found it as a wonderful springboard for fiction. So I'm writing a new novel right now. I can't wait. About about cheating and about lying and about, you know, living in a world that you think is like this. And then suddenly you discover it's like this. And I'm holding my hands up for people that can't see us right now, but in two different positions lying and and experiencing a lying partner is also a grief because you're grieving the true love that you thought you were living. And I know that love was true. I know it. I know that this is his problem, his addictions, his whatever. But you were grieving what you thought that truth that you thought you were living. Yeah. And trying to uncover now lie after lie after lie that got you to this place of of, oh my God, everything I know is unraveled. Everything I thought was true is untrue. And I think it's so important. You know, I like what you're saying, which is, you know, you're finding a way to write about it, right? Because that's one of the mechanisms that you have. And again, you have many because you're a speaker and a photographer and screenwriter and all that stuff. But, but it's, but it is a way of moving and making sense of how the energy feels, right? And so to be able to do that in fiction is really important if that, you know, if preserving the identity and the truth of the story is really important, but, but the, 
But the fiction piece is you get to be creative with whatever it is that you need to move through and come to understand and find a way because the loss, the sort of secondary loss of partnership is when there's been betrayal is going back over all of the story and having to oh, rewrite yeah. it or wonder if it's true. We, t- we talk about all those kinds of losses in here. This, this podcast has people who, you know, I had a woman on who just talked about the loss of being the only female executive in an office space. That's not how she dreamed of her life as a female executive. So it isn't just always something as tangible as my, my partner moved out. It is also, and the entire life and the way that I understood it no longer arranges its in my understanding in the same way. And that sometimes is even more brutal, the secondary losses of, of what I thought I had. My husband is English and I was in England for the World Cup, which I don't know if you follow soccer at all, but England is a maniacal country about soccer and that football, as they call it. And they were in the World Cup final against Italy and they lost in shootouts the way they had lost in shootouts you know, I think it was 13 years before and then 26 years before or something like that. Sorry for the history that I don't remember. And (laughs) my husband, who's in his forties was like, I mean, I could see the PTSD that they lost the exact same way that they had lost before. And what happened was people left their houses to deface things out in in England, particularly of these three gorgeous, very young men of color who had, there was a big, beautiful mural in one of their hometown and they went and, you know, defaced it. Wow. And there were, there was, you know, the Telegraph and the Observer and all that. They, they had articles about it. And I, what I said on a podcast was that's just grief. That's just unresolved grief. That is, that is primarily men not understanding what do I do with this mother load of energy that is inside of me, you know, obviously channeled in this profoundly racist way. It was corrected. Communities came out and fixed it and all of that. But I think about that anytime, anytime people are flipping cars or burning their own city down because of a sports event or because of a verdict or a, what we are talking about is people who have no mechanism and no channel. And for, for many of those folks, they're talk, they're not just holding the grief of that moment. They're holding their ancestors grief. They're holding their, their own past experience from their childhood. And so the mechanism of being able to say something like, listen, the action items around here are, are only specific to whatever works for you. But I was really stunned to discover myself writing after my mom died because I hadn't written really since I was in high school, but I couldn't stop writing. I mean, I just couldn't stop. And for me, it was really important to have other people read it, not in a narcissistic way, hopefully, but in a, in a validation way. Like, yeah, I know that totally makes sense because I felt really crazy. You know, my mom just died. Everybody's moms die eventually. Like that's a normal thing, but not one cell in my body felt normal. And while I feel more normal now, two years out, my life is still not normal. I would tell you that many of the things, my family took this big cross-country trip at the beginning of COVID and everyone's like, oh, such a good idea. It's good for your family. It's good for your kids. They'll know their geography. And it was really important to me to say, this is just, this is just me grieving. I can't sit still. I, I have to be in motion. I know even if we didn't have COVID, even if there wasn't lockdown, even if I, I still think we might've pulled our kids from school to go and do this because I had to move. What you're going to find out when you're finished your book is (laughs) that that book allows you to put that grief on a shelf. 
in a box, literally, literally on the shelf in a box. It's, it's in a, it's in between a spine and, and in pages, but it is a way of putting that grief on a shelf. The other novel that I wrote was called Between Here and April was mm -hmm. about when I was, when I was six years old, I lost my best friend, Connie, yeah. and nobody told me what happened to her, but the sixth graders on the bus said that her mother killed her. And I was like, what, what? I was six years old at the time. And so all I knew was that my friend Connie was killed by her mother. I did not know the mechanism. I did not know if it was true or not. And when I finally went to therapy for the first time in my life at age 32, my therapist asked a very important question. What was the biggest trauma in your early years? Can you remember it? And I said, oh, losing Connie. And she said, well, what happened? I said, I don't really know. I think that her mom killed her. And she goes, what do you mean you think that she killed her? You're a journalist, go find out. <laughs> so I did find out and I found out that, you know, it was like buried in page C3 of the Washington Post from 1972. And yeah, so Connie was killed by her mother and her, her sister and an older brother I didn't even know about was killed as well. And the mother put the exhaust pipe, you know, through the car and killed herself and the children. And then I realized like, I can't actually write the story because all the people I want to talk to about it are dead. Yeah. And so that was my first foray into fiction because then I could transform that grief of that loss into a fictional world. And I swear to God, it used to bother me all the time. I used to think about Connie all the time. It was a, it was a heavy burden I carried of this not knowing. And now that I know, because I wrote a fictional version of it, which is going to stand in my head as the version, right? Because I don't know what happened it's gone. I mean, it's there, right? I can, I can, I can feel it when I'm talking to you about it right now, but it was literally on the shelf, on the shelf. That is so fascinating. I mean, it's so fascinating to hear that you essentially came up with your own way of processing through which your own way turns out to be a kind of therapy that I use, which you may know this, but, but getting someone to bring up a really traumatic event in their life and then use their imagination as a way to sort of resolve. So it's usually more discreet than this. It's usually you were in a car accident. You couldn't turn the car away to prevent the accident. We bring up that memory of you trying to press on the brakes. And instead of having the accident, we just allow your body to have a different experience. Oh, that's so exciting. It's, it's amazing. And, and in my book, a lot of what I talk about, so there's somatic therapy for that and parts therapy, which Dick Schwartz, but, but it's essentially just bringing something into the experience that wasn't there. And I had a client many years ago whose brother died in front of him and he didn't, it wasn't clear that his brother had died. He had a heart condition and it wasn't clear that his brother had died, but he was whisked away. And then he learned his brother died. And the most pain he was ever in is that he didn't realize it was happening in the moment. And if he had, he would have hugged him and said goodbye. Oh, wow. Right. And so obviously we can't make that happen. It was 25 years ago, right. but in his imagination, we made it happen. Right. And then all of a sudden things like shoulder tension and he had had this long-term like IBS bowel thing that it, got, it just, all. Oh. wow. And the way he thought about the memory loosened. Right. And so one of the exciting things about being a trauma therapist is that, and I will say to people that doesn't happen all the time. You don't get to help people in that concrete way all the time, but when it happens, it makes the job worth it. But I do think that we are, we are so wired to want some sort of resolution and relief that 
you went and said, I'm going to, I'm going to make this story, the story that I need it to be yeah, so that I can let it go. And I just love your therapist question because in inpatient treatment, which I did, and I, you know, I send people to do, you do a trauma timeline. And you, so you write down what you think are the bad things that happened to you and you bring it back up. And then they're like, okay, and now add, like, we would like you to add your sexual experiences to right. what you think is your trauma timeline. And now we'd like you to add your educational experiences to what you think is your tra- trauma timeline. And how about how do you use substances and how do you, and suddenly you've got all these threads across that start to look like something in sort of waves and pulses. And it's really stunning. And I've always thought to myself, like, okay, well, maybe we don't want every college kid to have to do a trauma timeline like that, but I don't know anybody that doesn't have some stuff where the energy isn't stuck in their system in some way. And not everybody becomes a creative or someone who uses their body in an athletic way that allows the energy to sort of move itself. In fact, the the people that I speak to in companies tend to be companies where people do a lot of focused on the numbers and the logic and the, and and, you know, they yeah. often say, I'm not really into this. I'm not sure this is going to be for me. And then, you know, they, they take away something that has nothing to do with their job. It takes, they take away something that has to do with the grief that they're not even going to bring into the room, right. but that needs some, needs some help and some energy. I mean, I'm just even thinking about the fact, like, <laughs> this is a, this is a side note, but it's relevant, which is when you're talking about rewriting the history or, you know, or finding the story that makes sense. You know, the reason I found out about my, my ex-partner's infidelity was I found a bobby pin in my bedside tray and I don't wear bobby pins. Shit. And then I found emails and, and notes and things like that. But, but he still insists that that bobby pin was not that was not anything. And with, with his therapist, he insists that the bobby pin is not anything. So I'm never going to get the story of the bobby pin. Right. I have to create the story of the bobby pin. How did that bobby pin get in my bedside drawer? Right. And so that is the work I must do right now is just create a story. And when I've done creating that story, which I'm working on every day, then I'll be done. I'll be done grieving the loss. You know what that makes me think of, you know, a lot of what, when I'm teaching people how to grieve, part of what makes it much more comfortable is to say, listen, we have a younger version of ourselves that's with us at all times. And they just are straight up emotion. They don't have the intellect to think about these things. They just have fear and they have envy and they have, and you know, you're responsible for them the same way you would be for a child. And so what you've just reminded me is sometimes we don't, tell a child something that is totally true. Cause we don't know the truth. We just right. give them an answer that, that feels good enough right. for them to let it go. One of the questions I ask people, and I, I was going to ask you is sort of like, do you have a spiritual organization of any kind that helps like something that feels like it's outside of your, you know, system, your own body and connected to the rest of the world or not? Because yeah. I think you do. I want to hear about it because I think sometimes the same way that we tell kids that elves helped or Santa was there or the Easter bunny did it, or the tooth fairy was a part of it, you know, that helps them with things that are more complicated, but I'd love to, yeah. Tell me about your, do you have an organizational? I don't, you know, I grew up Jewish and, and going to synagogue on Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, but I'm not, I don't consider myself religious in that way. I'm more of a bagel Jew. Right. But, and I don't believe in a wrathful God. I just don't but I do believe in awe. 
And I think what religion tries to impress upon you is this idea of awe, of taking a moment to appreciate where you are in time and space, that you're like on the spinning rock and oh my God, there's so many ways you could not have been here, right? And so there is a, there is a goal of mine that it's not something I would have actually said that I do every day, but when you're asking me, what is my system? My system is to seek out awe every day in some small way. So it's like every day I go on a morning walk and every day on that morning walk, I'm trying to find an image, something like this morning, I could show you on my phone. I saw like a reflection of a bodega and a puddle and it just took my breath away. The reflection of the bodega and a puddle, the way the light was hitting it. And that's all, right? If you have that sort of experience of a transformative experience of awe every day, the rest of the day is fine. You know, like it, it could be a shitty day, but it's going to be fine because you saw that puddle. And I try to keep that sense of like right now I'm looking out my window and the sunset is amazing. There's yeah. like a pinks in the sky and blues and grays. And, you know, my dad was all about sunrise and sunset and his whole theory of life is, you know, every day there's a sunrise and a sunset and you have it in you to see both if you can take the time to do it. And to this day, I think to myself when it's sunset, oh, I really should go outside and just like experience it. Yeah. And luckily I live in a place where I can just look out the window and experience it right now. I don't, I didn't always live in a place like that, but I try every day to sort of take a moment and it's meditative, right? It's the meditative breathing. It's the, it's taking that moment, stepping back out of the chaos of life and saying, oh my God, that flower is gorgeous. Yeah. Or, oh my God, that sunset is beautiful. That feels like the dual process to me of living your life. And then also having, you know, grief and anger and frustration and all of those other things like doing both and of it, but also I'm never going to forget this conversation because one of the things that drives me and many people I work with the most crazy is when they flip to page 17 in Oprah magazine and it's like, practice gratitude, practice gratitude. And then you won't have to have bad feelings is essentially what's implied. And I think what you're describing is practicing awe, which has nothing to do with bad feelings. Bad feelings also get to exist. We're not superseding them by being grateful for all the things you're literally saying, you know, shit could be burning down to the left. All my children could be in the house with COVID. Which they are. <laughs> you can still look at the sunset and say, I am plugged into that, the beauty of that. When I was traveling cross country, we, we were ostensibly going to see as many national parks as we could in the period of time that we were away. And we, we saw, I think, 24 national wow. parks, something like that. It was amazing. And national monuments. But I got to the Badlands. If people haven't seen them, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it looks like another world. It looks like you're on a different planet. And, and also we were traveling during the election. And so it was this crazy superimposition of like, we were in Michigan and Michigan felt one kind of way and nobody was wearing masks. And then we were in, we were in New Mexico and in New Mexico, everything was shut down and nothing was open. And, you know, they were trying to protect their ancient Pueblo people. I mean, it was, it was a really extraordinary time to be doing what we were doing. But when I was in the Badlands, I felt a quieting inside my body in the middle of this giant electrical storm. And I just thought dinosaurs were here. Like this is older than anything my mind can even imagine. That's my awe. Like somehow that quieted me. I know it all feels impossible, but it's actually so much bigger than you. It felt so 
soothing in a way that nothing, no organized religion or sort of any other structures that I can clip into that other people would want to teach me did. And so now that's just the thing that I crave. And, and it probably is a little bit of physical awe, right? Like just feeling in my body, that sense of physical awe. I felt the way that you're describing in Joshua tree at one point there yet. I didn't get there yet. Oh my God. It was just standing in the middle of those crazy looking Susian trees with my kids. It was just insane. Yeah. And beautiful and awe inspiring and all that stuff. But yeah, it doesn't have to be Joshua tree. It can be like, you know, New York Harbor on a pretty day. That's, that's the thing. It's like when people say, well, I don't live in a nice place. Well, there, it doesn't matter. I found awe in a puddle this morning. So well, it's, it's the practicing awe and, and, you know, it's the practicing awe. It's the, it's the invitation to, to be on alert and out there for something that feels comforting and maybe not just the rage of injustice and the underneath that rage, just the absolute brutality of how the world really can be. Sometimes it's also, you know, a bodega reflected puddle. And I think, you know, again, when people aren't, you're not going to start this Susan G. Komen foundation in honor of your sister dying of cancer, but that doesn't mean you didn't love the hell out of your sister. I do think there are some other things that are more like what you have described. And honestly, I'm never going to, I'm never going to forget the concept of practicing all because it's never landed in that way for me before. I would just love to ask, like, when you think about, you know, the broader concept of everything you have already done and everything you have already been through, do you have energetic hope and aspiration of a, of a next project, a next place in life, a next thing that you want to do that either continues that energy, frees you from that energy, amplifies that energy? So, um, you know, I'm at a turning point, obviously, because I just now ended a four-year relationship. You know, my four-year post-marriage relationship is over. I have been trying to get another full-time job and failing. So I've just decided that I'm going to put all my energy into the Substack. Today, I put out a new article and I got 15 paid subscriptions from that. And if I can build up to a thousand paid subscriptions, that's $50,000 a year. If I can build up to 2000 paid subscriptions, that's, that's a decent salary. And I realized that I'm too old to get hired right now at 55. No one wants to hire me. Doesn't matter how many Emmys I've had, how how many New York times bestsellers I've had, I'm unhirable. And so I now have to figure out what is my worth in a capitalist society and how am I going to get paid for that worth? How am I going to get paid for my words? And so that is my next goal is figuring out how to be my own corporation, you know, my own, my own company. I also am writing this new book. Yeah. Um, I'm also exploring the idea of making Shutter Babe, my old book into a TV show with a friend of mine who is an actress who wants to play the lead role. And Lady Parts is also being considered for a TV show as well. So it's like, I have all these projects it's yeah. going to be called, you know, Deb Copakin Inc. at this point, because I can't get hired for the life of me. I have been dating someone. It's been wonderful and it's going extremely slowly. And that's where I need it to be right now. Just yeah. at the slow, slow pace. I've told him I'm not even introducing him to my kid until a year. So we'll see how that goes. Oh man. I mean, you know, 
I don't need to say this to you because you already know it, but it's insane to hear that you're, that you can't get hired. And so in my, in my world, I'm like, well, then that's not supposed to be what happens. You're supposed to be your own thing. It seems to me that there is something that doesn't make any mathematical, emotional sense. And maybe that's because you're about to, you know, have to hustle to do it, but create something really extraordinary that is all yours and yours. So the subset became this place where I could put these articles that normally get rejected. Yeah. And then I look at the numbers of people who have shared them. It's in the, you know, it's in the tens of thousands, like people want this information. So it's a highly specialized publication but it is, you know, today I talked about my entire family having COVID because we got Omicron and I'm boosted and I, I don't have it right now. To me, your book, Lady Parts, is this huge miracle. If it becomes a TV show, all of those things, like there, there is energy behind what you're doing, which is landing over here with me and really impacting me. And I am just one normal person on Thank the planet. Thank you. I so. really appreciate that because, you know, the, the stuff that we have, the headwinds are intense. You have been so incredibly generous and kind and are, you know, I am a huge fan of yours. I am so grateful for this conversation, which is unlike anyone that I've had before. I've given your book to basically every woman that I was giving a present to is getting one of your book, you know, getting lady parts. I really appreciate it. I hope everybody on your side of the house heals. This was really, really generous of you to do. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to the new year 2022 and back to Grief is My Side Hustle. I would be so grateful if you would head over to Apple Podcasts and leave the podcast a review if you enjoyed it. Um, It's not that complicated to do, but some folks have told me they've had a hard time. You need to click on the show, not the episode. Scroll down to the middle of the show and it will show you the stars and the written reviews. The written reviews are the ones that um, I understand help people find the show and get it out there for people to listen to. So thanks so much, and we will see you next week.